Welcome to the Painesville Assembly of God podcast. We're always encouraged to know God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email at info at Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Hey, once again, it's good to be with everybody today. And uh, just a quick update, the, uh, the video usually teaching Tuesdays is at seven o'clock because of our virtual VBS uh, that is going on. Uh, we are actually going to be pushing that back to 7.30. So if you join us for Teaching Tuesday this week, it is 7.30 is the time. I'll send out a reminder email as well, but just want you to be aware of that. We've had a good time studying the covenant names of God. Well, today we're going to kick off a new uh, sermon series. How many of you know we're living in turbulent times, right? I don't have to, to tell you. Uh, I think we've all been experiencing that. We're embar- bombarded every day with new headlines. Uh, if you watch, you can get caught up in the local news, and depending on which station you watch gets to be which slant and which narrative they want to tell. And uh, there is so much that is politically charged. And then on top of that, we, have, uh, we live in the wonderful age of social media. And, uh, and with that, uh, we have a personal platform to which we get to share our opinions on the matter. Uh, Not only do we get to share our opinion and our posts, but we get to share articles that we come across. We get to share uh, video links and all kinds of things. And so uh, it is very easy uh, today uh, to know exactly where most people stand. Um, People are are today very uh, quick to let us know their opinion on matters. Uh, and, uh, and that can get overwhelming. I don't know about you, uh, but that can get overwhelming. I can just be honest with you as a pastor that I'm overwhelmed uh, by all of that information and sometimes have to try to disconnect as much as possible from that. Uh, you know, we, we started to experience in March these government shutdowns and, uh, and they began to impact economically. And although there were some things that tried to provide some help to those who were struggling, uh, oftentimes the people who really were hit by that were the people who really couldn't afford to be hit by that. And some of the lowest economic tiers and some of the jobs where there were service jobs that suddenly stopped, their income stopped, and and, uh, it became very difficult to be able to get uh, help in some of those ways. And uh, although, again, help was offered, uh, it became very difficult. And so you have a lot of people that are struggling economically. On top of that, you have people that are struggling emotionally. Uh, to be isolated and to be told that you have to be in your home and you can't go anywhere. Those that were at risk with addictive uh, problems or that struggle with depression or struggle with other mental health issues all of a sudden found themselves in a very vulnerable position. And so we have people that are, that, that this has created some other byproducts where we saw suicide rates go up, where we saw uh, overdose rates go up. And, uh, and so to curb one side with, with trying to deal with a very real physical problem and, uh, and a virus that is, that, that again, we did not know at that time how dangerous it was. And even now uh, in certain areas, things are going up. Uh, you, you have now some byproducts of some measures to try to protect that impacting other areas. Then you have schools that suddenly had to quickly shut down and move to online platforms, which for those that uh, had technology and those that had parents that were supportive was not much of a big deal. Was it an easy transition? Was it something everybody liked? Absolutely not. Did it put pressure on a lot of teachers and a lot of people to try, administrators to try to transition? Absolutely. 
But if you did not have a family that was very supportive, if you lived in a single parent household where your parent, your parent did have a job and they were forced to go to work and you're on your own, or you do not have technology, or perhaps your parent struggles with mental illness, mental health illness, or those kinds of things, or perhaps addictive issues in that way, then you didn't have the support, so you took a step back educationally. These are byproducts of some of the things that took place. And so while we're stuck in our homes and we're dealing with all of these things and we find ourselves getting angry and we find ourselves conflicted over whether this should shut down, whether this shouldn't shut down, what should we do? We have all of that stirring. We're wrestling with whether we need to wear a mask or not. I won't go into that. Uh, on top of that, early on, in, 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 before all of this, we had a young man in Georgia, a black man, young black man, who happened to be jogging in a Georgia suburb when all of a sudden people prejudged and thought that he was somebody that had been committing thefts in the neighborhood. And so rather than call 911, they jumped in their trucks. They began to chase this young man. They began to corner this young man. They actually used their vehicle to hit this young man. And then with a firearm, they wrestled with this young man who, if somebody was chasing me with a truck and with a firearm, I would fight back too. I'm just going to be honest with you. And he ends up dead. And for months, this goes unpunished and nobody is arrested and nothing is done. Video surfaces and a very real problem and an issue of prejudice and racism that has existed in this nation, let's not ignore it, suddenly comes to light only months later to have in Minneapolis a Minneapolis police officer who went overboard and, uh, and, and who stuck his knee on the neck of George Floyd for nine, nearly nine minutes when he is saying, I can't breathe, not changing anything to watch this man die. Injustice. All of this is happening. And I didn't even go into the fact that legislation was on the table to protect the rights of the unborn that did not happen. Injustice. There is injustice in our world. There is injustice in our nation. And people are angry. People are angry. Not just people angry in terms of protests. Yes, all of those things in terms of protests and then protests getting out of control, things being done. But now all of a sudden you have an attack on all police officers, which equally is unfair and not right. And we have police officers that are being shot. Friends, there is injustice in our world today. But I've got to tell you that our, not only is our world and our nation divided, but as a pastor, my heart is broken because there is division in the church. There is division among God's people. How do we respond as believers? How, how are we, what does the Bible say? You know, so often we get caught up emotionally in what's going on and we begin to get attached to a political narrative that we like and we allow the political narrative to drive us and then we look for supporting things within the Bible rather than looking at the biblical narrative first. And what if the biblical narrative disagrees with the political narrative that we line up on? What do we do then? And I've got to be honest with you. As pastor, my heart is broken for the injustice that I see in our world. My heart is broken for the division that I see in our world, but the division that I see in our church. And not only that, 
But sometimes the response, not just simply in simply sharing an opinion, but rather what I see in terms of the back and forth, sometimes how the opinion is shared and the unkindness that can follow. The lack of gentleness, the lack of love, the lack of compassion that I believe should be in God's people. But I'm not seeing that. And as an under-shepherd, so, so Jesus is the shepherd, right? I am the good shepherd. But as an under-shepherd, I began to pray and seek the Lord and say, God, as pastor, how do you want me to guide the people that are under my care? And I believe the Lord began to lead me to a passage of Scripture, several actually, two passages of Scripture in general, but one that really arrested my attention and then led me to the other passage of Scripture. So Matthew chapter 23, uh, verses 23 and 24, Jesus is addressing Pharisees and scribes, the religious people of his day. Now you have to understand that the Israelite nation was God's chosen people. This is pre-Christianity. Christianity came out of the Jewish faith, came out of God's promises to Israel. And so what God is addressing are the religious leaders and he's what Jesus is addressing is, in a sense, at that point, the church. So you may be an unbeliever that, that is joining us today, and I'm so glad that you're here, and there'll be things that I know you'll take away from this. You may be an unbeliever watching online, but I want to tell you that today's message is directed to the church. It's directed to God's people today, because let judgment begin with the house of God. That's what Scripture says. So Matthew chapter 23, 23 and 24, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe and the mint and the anise and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Look at this, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So what he's saying is the tithe and, and, and being obedient and the sacrifice, being obedient in the offerings, that's not wrong. Don't stop doing that. However, there are some things that you have left undone. There are some things that are incomplete. For you blind guides, you have strained out a gnat and swallow a camel. So in other words, you're majoring in the minors and minoring in the majors. And what are the majors? Justice and mercy and faith. Now, who's Jesus talking to? Again, he's, a draw, he's talking to the Pharisees of his day. And that's where the title of the message series that we're into, Weightier Matters, comes from. You have neglected the weightier matters. Do what you've, don't, don't neglect the other now. Don't just flip it over. But you're paying attention to some things that are not the things that I want you to pay attention to. Now, there's another passage of Scripture God brought to mind, an Old Testament prophet by the name of Micah. Anybody ever heard of Micah before? Micah is considered one of the minor prophets, not because he was minor in terms of the message or he was any less of a prophet, but rather the content of his writings was smaller than the content of, say, an Isaiah, a Jeremiah, an Ezekiel, a Daniel, those kind of things. His content that he wrote was smaller, and so he's found in the latter parts of, of the Old Testament as you go, you go back from Matthew, you go back, you'll come and run into Micah. And Micah is addressing some things, kind of a, a court scene, God begins to bring in this vision to Micah, the people of God are not following God, yet they're having a problem with God, and God's having a problem with them. And so he says, okay, let's bring it to trial. In the hills and the mountains are going to be the witnesses, they're going to be the jury. 
So here we go, Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. So you see that God is setting the tone. He's saying, all right, you've got a problem with me. I got a problem with you. Let's bring it. We're going to, we got the scales of justice. Let's bring it. Let's state your case, all right? And so the courtroom scene is set and God begins his defense. And this is his defense in verse three. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. Do you see what the Lord says? The Lord says, I'm redeeming, I'm reminding you. What is he reminding them of? I'm reminding of you when you were mistreated, when you were slaves, when you were mistreated, when you were facing injustice, I came to your rescue and I set you free. Not only did I set you free, but I also protected you. When you came out and there was a king who was threatened by how many of you there were and that you were going to take over, instead of allowing you to be cursed, instead, I allowed you to be blessed. I protected you, I blessed you, and I guided you on your journey. I want you to remember what I've done for you. Why is that important? Because in the context, God is setting them up for something. God is reminding them of the salvation that he brought when they were experiencing injustice, when they were vulnerable, what he did for them. And he's reminding them of that. Why? Because there is a battle going on, and this is what he says, what can we bring to the the Lord. This is their response. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings and yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? You know what Micah's pointing out? Micah's pointing out that the people are saying, God, you've got a problem, but how are we going to satisfy this problem that you have? Aren't we bringing you offerings? Aren't we bringing you offerings? Aren't we? Should we bring you the yearling calf? Should we bring you these offerings? What should we do? Even down to where you see the adultery that's weaved into their heart as they begin to say, should we offer our firstborn children? That's what other gods did. That's what other nations did. And, 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 and they're trying to say, God, listen, we've been, we've been offering sacrifices to you. Kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. You tie the mint and the dill and the coop. You, you bring your sacrifices and your offerings. Isn't that enough? And yet we know that later on, we know that Saul, uh, or, or earlier on in Micah, we know that when King Saul came and God had asked him, he, he, had, he had sent him out to win victory over an army, he gave him specific instructions and Saul began to hold back the best of the plunder and he began to hold back the sheep and the cattle and Samuel confronts him. And this is what it says, 1 Samuel 15, 22, does the Lord not delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So what God is saying is, listen, 
You can bring all the offerings you want, but your offerings are incomplete if you are disobedient in certain areas. So the question becomes, okay, God, what are you trying to say? If our offerings are incomplete, if that's not what you're asking for, if you're reminding us of the injustice that we faced and how you brought us out and you protected us and you guided us and you set us free, then what do you require of us? And we come to Micah 6 verse 8 and he says this, he is showing you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Justice and mercy. Isn't this what we saw in Matthew chapter 23? Do not neglect the weightier matters of justice and mercy. Listen, friends, justice and mercy are important to God. Justice and mercy are important to God. And today, I want to begin to unpack a little bit of what this is, justice and mercy, walking humbly with our God. But today, we're just going to begin with justice. But let me just begin by addressing Micah 6.8 because you'd say, well, wait a minute. To do justly and to love mercy, aren't justice and mercy at odds with one another? Aren't they the opposites of what you would see? And I'm going to murder these Hebrew words, but you have to understand that the term for mercy is a Hebrew word, C-H-E-S-E-D-H. So I don't know how you say that, kased, 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 I don't know, something like that. That's the Hebrew word for mercy, and it means unconditional grace and compassion. And the word for justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. Mishpat, M-I-S-H-P-A-T. And and what we need to see here is that Mishpat puts the emphasis, justice puts the emphasis on action, where Kaseta, mercy, puts the emphasis on the attitude or the, the, the motive behind the action. So to walk with God, we must do justice out of merciful love. So let's look at justice from a biblical standpoint. That's what we're going to unpack. Today's going to be very scripture heavy and it's going to be very teaching today, all right? A little less preachy, a little more teachy today. But I want you to get this because I want you to see what the Bible says about justice. How does the Bible define justice and what does this mean for God? Number one, justice is care for the vulnerable. Justice is care for the vulnerable. The word justice, mishpat, in its various forms occurs more than 200 times throughout the Old Testament. And most basic meaning is to treat people equitably, to treat people equitably. Leviticus 24, 22 warns that Israel is to have the same mishpat or the same rule of law, the same justice for the foreigner as the native. Now, the foreigner is the immigrant, the immigrant, the same justice as an immigrant as a citizen. Mishpat means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. But mishpat means more than just punishment of wrongdoing or acquittal according to the case. It also means to give people according to their rights. An example of this is Deuteronomy chapter 18, where it directs the priests of the tabernacle that those priests should be supported by a certain percentage of the people's income. So the priests, that's what it's talking about. So listen, Deuteronomy 18.3 This is the share due, the priest from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep, the shoulder, the internal organs, and the meat from the head. All right, Deuteronomy 18.3. The word due is the word mishpat, justice, and here it means do right. So it has to do with rights. It has to do what is rightfully mine. So in justice, we know in America, we're all about this idea of rights and justice. So how does this all come together in terms of treating people equitably? 
punishment and acquittal based on the same fact, no prejudice whatsoever from race or social standing or anything else, uh, immigrant or, or, or citizen, all to be treated the same and equally as well as given what is due our rights. We see this connection with Proverbs 31, 19, where it says, speak up and judge fairly, defend the rights, that's the mishpat, of the poor and the needy. Again, giving people what is their due, whether punishment or protection or care. And if we survey this word for justice used in the Old Testament, several classes of people tend to come up regularly. We might call them the quartet of the vulnerable. All right, the quartet of the vulnerable. These same people come up over and over again in Scripture, and they are the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, meaning the immigrant, and the poor. Zephaniah 7, 9 to 10, we really see it. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice and show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. See, in the time period in this was written, these four groups of people were the most vulnerable. They were literally at the subsidence level. In other words, they were only days away from famine. They, they lacked the ability to really have any kind of rights. We see it in the book of Ruth when she comes back as a foreigner with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, and you have Boaz who has a field, and Boaz says, leave a little extra behind. Don't stop her from being able to pick it up. This was a way that God said, you're to provide for the foreigner. You're to provide for the widow. This is what you ought to do. Rather than saying, all of this is mine. I've earned this and you're not getting any. I'm going to strip it down to the absolute less. He said, just take what's there and leave a little behind so that those who are most vulnerable can be fed. These were the ones who were most vulnerable. They were the ones who could be taken advantage of, and they're the ones that we see. Today, it might include a refugee. It might include a migrant worker. It might include somebody who is homeless, a single parent, an elderly person. It might include somebody of a particular race that is not given the same opportunity or who has experienced prejudice. These are the folks that are vulnerable, and God cares about the vulnerable. According to Timothy Keller, the justness of a society, according to the Bible, is is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice or mishpat. God loves and defends those who have the least economic and social power, and so should we. That's what it means to do justice. Why are we concerned about the vulnerable in society? Why should we be concerned? The simple answer is this, because God is concerned about them. God is concerned about justice. God is concerned about those that are vulnerable. Therefore, if we are his people, then that ought to be a concern of ours as well. Some of us are more concerned about whether, oh, I better stop. I'm going to get in trouble. We're more concerned. I'm, I'm just going to say this because we're, you know, the governor came out and we, we're near this level red. And if it's a level red, you know, then everybody has to wear masks if you're inside. And that includes church. And, and I've heard some people just all up in arms. Some of us are more up in arms about that than we are about injustice with people like George Floyd and people like, uh, you know, Ahmaud Aubrey. Who, who have experienced injustice. We're, we're more up in arms about that than we are about those that don't have a voice, like the unborn. 
We're more up in arms about that than we are about showing compassion to those that are in need and those who are economically challenged through all of this. But God forbid I have to be inconvenienced. I'm sorry. You want to know where I stand? Everybody else gets to put theirs out. That's where I stand. Don't bother to text me or email me. You're not changing my mind. There's something about love and compassion. Psalm 146, 7 and 9, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Are you frustrated? Who are you caring about? Who are you concerned about? Yee. The word cause is the word mishpat. It's the word justice. And we ought to be actively involved in seeking justice. Deuteronomy 10.18 says that the Lord defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Let me read through a passage that, this passage, I, I just think we don't understand this idea of God being known as a defender of the vulnerable, a defender of the widow, the fatherless, the, the immigrant. I don't know if we really understand that, but uh, Lankin scholar uh, Vinoth Ramachandra calls this scandalous justice. This is what he wrote, and I love it. He says, in virtually all ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through uh, the, and identified with the elites of society, the kings and the priests and the military captains, not the outcasts. He says, to oppose the leaders of society was to oppose the gods. But here in Israel's uh, rival vision, it's not high-ranking uh, males, but it's the orphan, it's the widow, it's the stranger with whom Yahweh takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. Wow. Man, that's the heart and the character of God. His character is justice for those that are most vulnerable. And as God's people, we ought to be like that. Proverbs 14, 31, those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. We think honoring God, we think we're singing songs in worship. We're coming in here and singing. Well, that's incomplete. I'm not saying that doesn't honor God, but honoring God is also how we treat those that are most vulnerable. And if a believer, we don't, we don't honor the cries and the claims of the poor, the most vulnerable, then the Bible says we don't honor God, no matter what we confess with our mouth. When we don't seek justice for the vulnerable, when we do seek, excuse me, when we seek justice for the vulnerable, we honor God and others take notice. That's how, that's how the Christian church got started. They, even when they were relatively small, speaking what they did during the Roman Empire is they began to take care of people and they began to come alongside people that were most vulnerable. And that is what helped repel their witness in a, in a state in which they were very much persecuted and which the things in which they believed were quite foreign and oftentimes uh, were pushed to the sides. But how did they do that? How did they, how, what was one of the ways that they expressed it? They were socially involved in loving those that everybody else didn't love. Ever, ever, when everybody else was walking out, they were walking in. That's the, the message of the early church. What is going to make a difference in our hurting world today is when we as believers begin to move towards the needs of the vulnerable, when we love them and when we speak up for justice, this is the very heart and the very character of God. So what is doing justice? Doing justice is caring for the vulnerable, but secondly, doing justice 
is, has to do with justice is about right relationships, right relationships. So the first part is having a concern for the poor and vulnerable. But the second part has to do with another Hebrew word, and we see it in Scripture translated being just or being righteous. Whenever you see being just or being righteous, particularly in the Old Testament, it has another Hebrew word that I'm going to be honest with you, I just really cannot pronounce. So I'm going to spell it for you, okay? It is T-Z-A-D-E-Q-A-H. That's a mouthful. Zadekah. I don't know how you say that. I'm not Hebrew, so I can't say that. I even took Hebrew in college, and I still can't pronounce that word. <laughs> what it means is it refers to right relationships. Bible scholar Alec Motyer defines righteousness as those right with God, therefore committed, committing to put right all other relationships in life. Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So the ministry of reconciliation is not just helping people to get a right relationship with God, but it is about helping right relationships with others. When we have a right relationship with God, we ought to work towards right relationship with others. It's why forgiveness is so important. As God has forgiven you, so you forgive others. As you have received mercy and compassion, so you share mercy and compassion. Right relationship with God equals a battle of ministry of reconciliation to right relationship with others, right relationship in families, right relationships in society. That's what we talk about. But sometimes when we think of righteousness, we think of moral righteousness, we think of purity, we think of doing those things that are right, and that's a part of it. We think of righteous acts like prayer and fasting and worship and church attendance and those kind of, they're not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. We think that's what we think in terms of righteousness, but righteousness goes way beyond just those moral things. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It goes beyond that to relationships. And while the word, this, this T word, I'm going to just call it the T word, okay, is primarily about being right with God, it also has to do with the righteous life that the work of Christ produces in our lives. So Job is considered a righteous man. How many would say that, that in the beginning, even God calls Job a righteous man? Can we agree with that? All right, now Job experienced a testing but it wasn't because Job was unrighteous. It was not a, a punishment for things that he was not doing right. However, the, the, there was a righteousness. So Job is giving his defense because people are coming around him and saying, well, this happened to you because you sinned. This happened to you because you're not somewhere. This wouldn't be right. So Job is bringing a defense. And listen to what Job does in terms of his defense because he's going to connect righteousness with justice. Look at this. Job 29, 12 through 17. This is amazing. I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying, bless me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness, that's the T word there, as my clothing. Justice, that's the mishpat word there, was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched victims from their teeth. Now, this is just one of multiple passages in Job where this is what Job does. He connects righteousness with justice. 
to the vulnerable, takes up the case of the stranger, that is the, the immigrant. He's there to rescue the poor and the fatherless and, 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 and father to the needy. And, and so being right with God is not just about a moral purity rightness, but is also about working towards right relationships with others and working towards those that are most vulnerable by bringing and speaking up for justice. In fact, throughout Scripture, these two words are joined together three dozen times, and the best English way in which, or English translation we can get from this is social justice. Social justice. Social justice is not a dirty word. Social justice is a biblical word. It has been politicized, and it has been captured in so many different forms, but ultimately, it is a biblical word that was grounded throughout the history of Israel. Way back, even in the book of Leviticus and other places, but also you say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, let's look in the book of James, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? So he's talking about deeds, righteous works. And here's what he says. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing with, about their physical need. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, unless accompanied by action, is dead. You say, well, where does righteousness come into all of this? Well, he gives a little illustration of Abraham and how Abraham's faith was demonstrated by the steps of obedience and action that he took. And then he closes in verse 24, just a few verses down. This is what he says. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Righteous. There's righteous. Righteous by what they do for, for who? What they do for who? For what? Because they, 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 they didn't drink and they didn't chew and they, you know, they, didn't, they didn't go out and have sex with girls that do or something like that. I mean, is that righteousness? Is that all there is? Certainly there's a part of moralness that is righteousness, but not just moralness. It's not to neglect the weightier matters of justice and mercy. Justice and mercy and being there for the vulnerable and being there for the poor is just as important because that's at the very heart of God and that's at the importance of righteousness. Righteous actions. You say, Pastor, you're crazy. Oh, yeah, well, Jesus was talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 6, he says this. He says this, a kingdom principle. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And so you say, well, yeah, absolutely. He talks about prayer, and he talks about fasting, and he talks about giving. But he talks about giving to who? He says, do not practice your rights. Then he gives this illustration about giving to who? Giving to the poor and the needy. Don't give to the poor and needy and put it out there. That's going to be your reward, but do it in secret. In other words, he connects righteousness to giving to the poor and the needy. You say, well, what about fasting? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament for a moment. One of our favorite passages of Scripture about fasting is Isaiah chapter 58. What does Isaiah? chapter 58 say about the practice of fasting, the righteousness of fasting. What is fasting for? Is it so that we can get more? So we can get more blessing? Oh God, no, this is what fasting is for. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Look at this, to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them? Clothe them. Friends, justice involves more than just punishment for wrongdoing, but it's about standing up for the rights of the most vulnerable and those that need us to step in and help. 
Those that need us to come alongside. Connected with righteousness involves a ministry of reconciliation. And it's about getting involved and meeting the needs of those in our society that are the most vulnerable. And it involves generosity and protection and care. Please do not politicize this and hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying socialism. But I am saying this. There is a part of the church and a part of the righteousness of Christ and a part of being a believer in which we are to be social and we are to be actively involved in taking what we have been entrusted with by God and standing up and helping those that are most vulnerable and those who are most in in need. Because your wealth is not yours. It is God's. And you may think that you did everything to earn it, But unless we've learned anything in a moment's notice, God can blow it all away. So God is looking for a church that not only does the other things of righteousness, of prayer and worship and gathering, but doesn't neglect the weightier matters of justice and mercy and caring for those that are in need, and standing up for those that don't have a voice, standing up for those that have been mistreated, asking the Lord to search our hearts for the prejudice in our hearts and say, God, root that out of me because that is not biblical and that is not of you. Asking God to help us to care. Hear my heart, all right? I want you to hear my heart. I'm not trying to come across angry. But friends, I just want you to know that I really believe that our testimony is at risk as, a, as believers. And I do believe that persecution is coming. And I believe that the answer, the answer that comes is going to come when we begin to do the things that Jesus asks us to do. And that is to step in and to see those who God sees and to step in to love who God loves and to be there for those that are most vulnerable and to to add to our evangelism, not only the proclamation of the gospel, but alongside of it, the actions in which we begin to come alongside and help meet a need. That's the balance. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's both. Let me remind you that God is holy. And the only reason that we don't as believers have the punishment we deserve is because Jesus Christ stepped in and sacrificed his rights his comfort, what he wanted, his position, so that he could take our position and take our pain and take our punishment and take our sin upon himself, and not only just so we can be forgiven of sin. That's great. I am so grateful I'm forgiven of sin. But that is incomplete because not only did he forgive us of our sin, but he gave us the righteousness of Christ. So in other words, my righteousness now when I am seen in the eyes of Almighty God on Judgment Day, he sees me as Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Somebody today in a CNN or somebody this week in a CNN thing tried to say that Jesus wasn't perfect or he didn't claim to be perfect. That's a lie. That guy's a lie. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't read the same Bible that I read. 
But that perfection of Jesus now begins on me and Jesus sees that in me. Therefore, when I was bound, therefore, when I was facing, uh, bound in slavery and facing injustice, God stood up for me and showed me mercy and compassion when I didn't deserve it, taking on my punishment and standing in my place. And that is what we ought to do as believers in Jesus Christ is to take the same example of Christ and to offer that to others. That is simply what I'm saying. To seek and have a huge heart. God has a huge heart for the widow, for the orphan. Our foster care system is a mess. What are we going to do as believers? It's a mess. There are things that are a mess. What are we going to do? Let us speak up for those that have experienced injustice and seek to generously give to those that are in need. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. We're going to close with, with, with prayer. We're going to go over time, um, and I, I don't apologize for that. But when it comes to what God requires, the weightier matters of justice and mercy, I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Where do you need to grow in those areas? Where do you need to grow in those areas? Have you been showing mercy and compassion? Is love and, and that coming out? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers type, if that was a thing back then. As we reflect, what is in our hearts? What do we fight more for? What do we speak more for? Jesus Christ and what he says? Or other opinions? What's in our hearts? Do we have the heart of God? Or have we grown cold? Have we grown hard-hearted? Have we heard the need way too many times and seen the need way too many times that we've started to get hard-hearted and not have the same heart for those that are vulnerable and need us to step in and to love them? Are we acting in justice and in mercy? Is that a part of our righteousness? Let's pray. Jesus, give us a heart, your heart, for those that are in need. Show us practically what that means. Lord, how do we love those that you love? How do we love those that are most vulnerable? How do we love those that cannot speak up for themselves or who have been held back because of certain prejudice or systems that keep people bound? How do we stand up for the orphan, for those in foster care? How do we come alongside those that are most vulnerable in our society, whether it be the single mother just trying to make it or whether it be the widow, or whether it be our elderly who don't have anyone to come alongside, whether it be someone who has experienced prejudice and racism, or Father, whether it's someone who's just trying to love and stand up for justice who's being mistreated. Father, who do you, what are you calling us to? The poor, the needy. Father, give us a heart for those that you have a heart for. Show us, God. Show us how to love the way that you love and how to be merciful the way that you're merciful. That, Father, our faith might not simply be all about, Lord, the, the external, other parts of righteousness, but it may also include a care and compassion and concern for those that you care about and for those that are in need. Father, give us that heart today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand, and we're just going to end with a time of 
worship today. If you're at home, I invite you to worship with us. And during this time, let the Holy Spirit just move in your heart. If you want to step out of your seat, maybe you need to do some business with God, I invite you, come down, kneel at these altars. I invite you to come and pray. And let's seek the Lord today as we close in this time of worship. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you are encouraged and strengthened by God's word. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, please visit PainesvilleAG.com.